My name is Keith Beavers, and my hair is getting to, like, man bun stage, and I'm getting really nervous, guys. Really nervous. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode 17 of Vine Pairs Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers. I'm the Tastings Director of Vine Pair, and how are you? Okay, this is going to be intense. Are you guys ready? We're going to talk about Burgundy. By the end of this episode, we're going to understand Burgundy. Isn't that crazy? You're going to understand Burgundy at the end of this episode. Is that crazy? This is crazy. You're going to understand it. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Talbot Vineyards. At Talbot Vineyards, we focus on crafting estate-grown Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in Monterey County's Santa Lucia Highlands. Our celebrated Sleepy Hollow Vineyard is located in one of the coldest grape-growing climates in California, ideal for these two varieties. Here, the brisk wind and fog rolling off Monterey Bay create a long growing season, producing fruit-forward wines with spectacular acidity. We listen to Wine 101. We know what acidity is all about, right? Building on a nearly 40-year legacy of meticulous craftsmanship, Talbot continues to produce highly acclaimed wines of distinction. So before we get started, guys, real quick, um, last episode, Pinot Noir episode, I forgot a very specific place where Pinot Noir is made that's really awesome. So go ahead to my Instagram, uh, VinePairKeith. I'm going to do a little video on IGTV to kind of wrap that up. I think you're going to enjoy it. Okay, so to understand Burgundy is when you hear people talking about it now, like today, it can be very confusing and you kind of glaze over a little bit. But to understand Burgundy is not to understand how it's talked about now so much as it is how it got to where it is today. And if you hear the story of it is very fascinating. And when you understand that story, a lot of stress and anxiety comes off. And you're like, oh, that's Burgundy. Okay, this is really cool. And I can, I can, I can actually approach it here a little bit. So let's, let's get to it. Let's talk about how this all started. About 43 million years ago, there was a mountain-building event where the Alps were being formed. I know, this is crazy. As the Alps were being formed, to the west of that is what is now southeastern France. And of course, mountain-building events are huge, so it's affecting a lot of earth around it. And in that southern, southeastern part of France, a large piece of earth is displaced from the crust and lifts up, and it's now called the Massif Central. It's this large, lifted piece of land that forms the the the, the varying um, elevations of hills and mountains in the lower part of France, the Rhone Valley, Languedoc. So, if the if the formation of the Alps was was affecting everything around it, and the Massif happened, when the Massif was happening, of course, it affected things around it. Just north of this large Massif, in what is now northeastern. France, a flat piece of land split open, and the left section of that piece of land lifted up and then stopped, forming a ledge. So you had a lower piece of land in the east and a large ledge, cliff-looking thing in the west. This is called an escarpment. If you've ever seen a, a waterfall, a waterfall is basically an escarpment. It, you know, the land lifts up, water is coming down, has nowhere to go, it has to go down. That's an escarpment. And what this event did was displace even more ancient soil and rock. And what it did was create one of the most unique soil compositions on the planet, especially when it comes to wine. We'll get there in a second. 
But what happens is the escarpment over millions of years, it, it grows over and it creates more like a slope. And then all these streams are formed on this escarpment. And what we have now is this slope of land with all this crazy soil in it and all these streams dispersing the different types of soil all throughout this region. And from the highest elevation of this escarpment in the west, sloping down towards the east into a valley, stopping at the Sone River in the middle of the valley, this area, humans, of course, started to occupy. Before the first century, we had the Celts. They were here in this area, and they, had a, they actually occupied a lot of the area. And there's evidence in archaeology that, their, that wine was part of their culture on their statues and on their gravestones. And then in 51 BC, the Roman Empire comes in and conquers this whole area. And of course, you know, the Romans, they, they had their wine. There's actually archaeological evidence of a villa, a Roman villa in this area with wine evidence. And all this is important because of what happened next. While this is all going on, there's a tribe of people up in the Baltic Sea called the Burgundians. They're, they're, they leave this island called Bornholm Island. They get to the mainland of Europe and they travel through or down a river and they eventually make their way into the Rhone Valley. This is where the Romans have their hold. There's a lot of history here. <laughs> we don't have time for it, but as the Roman Empire begins to disintegrate, the Burgundians take hold of this area and they create their own dynasty. They create the, the kingdom of Burgundy in the Rhone Valley. And at some point it starts to expand north to include that escarpment we're talking about. And from AD 456 to AD 534, the Burgundian kingdom thrived. But in AD 534, here come the Franks. They destroy that dynasty and they start a whole new dynasty, a Frankish dynasty called the Merovingian dynasty. This wipes the Burgundians from existence, basically. But what's really cool is from then on, the, the, the region is still considered Burgundy, even to this day, of course. And it's here in this period of history where what we see today in Burgundy starts to form. A king dies, and the land is partitioned throughout the family of the, of the dynasty. And the one, this kind of begins a feudal system. And where Burgundy is now, the ruler of that area was a guy named King Guntram. In AD 587, he donates a vineyard to an abbey in Burgundy and of monks. And this is the beginning of what is called monastic viticulture. It started here. And from this point on, it was the monks and the monasteries that started to define demarcate, parcel out the most fragmented wine region in the world. From just south of this escarpment in a, in a town called Macon to a town called Dijon, just about almost 80 miles north in the northern part of this escarpment, from this point through to the 14th century and beyond, it was the monks, starting with the Benedictine monks, who began to acquire what are today some of the most revered vineyards in Burgundy. Vineyards around the southern town of Mecon started to take shape. Just north of Mecon is a town called Chalon, and there were, of course, vineyards around there taking shape. But north of Chalon, there's a town called Bon. And north of Bon was a town called Nuit Saint-Georges. And the vineyards around those two towns 
became some of the most prized vineyards in the region and today the world. This, the slope of the escarpment right here, is what is called Cote d'Or, the slope of gold. And it's in this region, the Cote d'Or, the slope of gold, that another order of monks called the Cistercian monks, they're the ones that really got things going. Okay, so what we have here is we have a land with extremely variant soils, so much that one row of vines next to another row of vines produced different styles of wines. Okay, so what these monks did, because monks had time, man. They had storerooms. They had cellars. They could, they could mature wine. They could keep records. They could organize and engage a systemic um, uh, method of improvement, learning from failures, trial and error. They started realizing what kind of diversity they had here. They didn't understand geology so much, but they knew something special was going on here. So they, what they started doing is creating these things called clo. They would take a, a vineyard, they called the vineyards klimat, and they would take these klimats and they would, they would actually build walls around these vineyards or klimat. And then they would section out those inside the walls and that would become a clo. Clo just means an area encased, it's surrounded in a wall. The most famous is Clos Vougeot. It's a large 120 acre vineyard with a winemaking facility in the middle of it. It's, it's very famous, we'll talk about that in just, just a second, but they did this all throughout the Cote d'Or. And they pieced out and parcelated and, and carved out all these little spots and created this extremely chaotic looking quilt of microclimates and microsoils. Because they had the time, they had also a, pretty much a free skilled workforce of the, you know, of the order. They could actually observe these very small plots of land and how different they were from each other, just so close to each other. And they started naming these places, started naming these vineyards. At this time, the majority of the grapes they were working with was basically Pinot Noir. There was also Gamay, which is related to Pinot Noir. And the white wines they were making was pretty much Pinot Gris. Chardonnay had not come around yet. So Pinot Noir was already being seen as this very special grape that could translate the different types of soil from row to row to vineyard to vineyard that was just so variant that it was blowing people's minds. So much so that in the 14th century, a new ruling class showed up in Burgundy called the Dukes of Burgundy. And it's under the, under the first Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Bold, we see the first documentation of Pinot Noir. Like, there it is in documentation. This dude loved Pinot Noir so much that in 1395, he issued a decree declaring the Gamay grape variety is harmful to human beings and to plant it would be contrary to the Burgundian way of life. Damn. So this started a big pull-out scheme. Everyone's pulling out Gamay and, and replacing it with Pinot Noir. It didn't happen all over the place, and not everybody, like, you know, adhered to the decree, but enough people did to make sure that this region, the Cote d'Or, was dominated in red grapes by Pinot Noir. So all of these very special, designated, demarcated, this chaotic quilt of vineyards was all Pinot Noir, and really started seeing this grape and how it translates the soil to the glass. This is the beginning of terroir. 
I mean, the word climat, which is what their word for a vineyard, just means climate. They actually thought a vineyard was not really a vineyard. It was actually a microclimate in itself. That's how it all began. So now we have a wine region here. We have vineyards in Mekong, the, in, in Chalon, the Chalonnais, but it's in Beaune and near Nuit Saint-Georges where these very concentrated vineyards are. And what's happening here is because they don't know it yet, but that ancient, ancient soil being dispersed over millions of years creates a patchwork of different soil compositions. So these different vines of Pinot Noir that are growing in these very, very, very close proximity to each other are producing different styles. It's amazing. People are losing their minds over it. And in the 17th century, we start seeing the commercialization of this area. The church didn't have as much influence anymore and more like the, the wealthy, sort of the bourgeoisie started buying up all these vineyards that were once donated to these monks. Now, we're going to talk a lot about this during the Chardonnay episode, but about halfway between the town of Bonn and Paris, on the Serene River, over the Morvan Mountains northwest of the Côte d'Or, is a little town called Chablis. And in that town, back in the 12th century, it's thought that the Chardonnay grape was found propagated, planted, and made into wine. And the Cistercian monks did to Chardonnay in Chablis what they did to Pinot Noir in the Côte d'Or, Mecon, Chalonnais. They started isolating it, demarcating vineyards, naming them, and all that. But it's in the 17th century that Chardonnay actually makes it from where it was born to the Côte d'Or. And it begins to thrive specifically in the slope of Bone, Côte de Bone. So in the Côte d'Or, we have a southern area, Côte de Bone, the slope of Bone, that's doing mostly white wine. And just to the north is the town of Nuit-Saint-Georges, and that slope, called Côte Nuit, is primarily Pinot Noir. So now this wine region is thriving from Chablis to the Côte de Nuit, to Bonne, to Côte de Chalonnais, where the Chalon town is in Mekon. This is what Burgundy is. And in the 18th century, roads begin to improve. Tolls begin to diminish. Commercial traffic starts to ramp up. And this comes, this leads to the rise of Negociant. The Negociant is like a French merchant who would buy grapes or must or wine from these wine growers, these vine growers, and blend it and sell it under their own label. It wasn't bad wine. It was just it was well done, but it was just like, you know, some people didn't have the ways and means. So they made, the vineyards made money, the negociants made money, and this is sort of how Burgundy made money for a long time. In 1791, when the French Revolution hit, everything changed. All these vineyards that were just sitting here, these famous, beautiful vineyards, were up for grabs for anyone. So they were auctioned off. And something very unique happened here. Some of the most famous vineyards, vineyards like Clos-Vougeau, that that 120-acre vineyard, um, a a famous vineyard called Le Chimpantin, these vineyards were auctioned off row by row so that some some vineyards had multiple owners. See, this is where it gets really confusing. If you look at a map of the Clos-Vougeau vineyard, it is insane. Over 80 people own rows and in, 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 in plots in the Clos-Vougeau. So it's, it's, it becomes very confusing here. And then what makes it even more confusing is the Burgundy region 
relies on the Napoleonic code of equal inheritance. So what happens is if a family owns two rows of vineyards, when the father dies, if he has two children, those two vineyards go equally to each child. If it's three, it's equal. If it's four, it's equal. It's pretty intense. And if one of the kids doesn't actually want to do this, they have to sell their shares. So it becomes, over the years, it became extremely fragmented even more. So throughout Burgundy, you have this going on. You have multiple people owning plots of particular vineyards. Sometimes a winemaker or vine grower owns enough just to make one barrel of wine. It's 25 cases. So in Burgundy, to understand it really, the vineyard is important, but what's even more important is knowing who's making the wine. Because if you have a vineyard that has a lot of owners, like the Clos-Vougeot has 80 people that own plots within that vineyard, even though they can make a wine in the same year from the same vineyard, because of the variance in soil and because of the way, I mean, everyone makes wine differently, it could all be different in the same year. That's what makes it a little bit confusing. So in 1855, there was this guy named Dr. Lavelle, and he was obsessed with the Cote d'Or and this whole, the whole of Burgundy. So he travels all of Burgundy, he visits all the vineyards, and then he starts classifying these vineyards in a four-category system, and this is what they are in descending order. Atop the best vineyards he could find, the best vineyards, the best wine, he called Tete de Cuvée. Just underneath that, he called the vineyards Premier. Then underneath that, he would call them, call them Deuxième. And then underneath that, Troisième Cuvée. Basically like the best, the first, the second, and the third. That was how he started doing it. And that's really awesome. So now we have this very kind of like very confusing vineyard system with all these names and all these people that own little plots of this stuff. But now we have a, we have a sense of like what we're working with here. So what he did was he gathered some people together. He formed a group and they started to formalize the classification system of Burgundy. So like I said, Burgundy is always defined by the vineyards. So they just reworded these four categories for what we know today. In descending order, you have Grand Cru at the top, Premier Cru, then you have Village, and then you have Bourgogne. And these are the classifications of the vineyard, which is what you're going to see on a wine label. But this is what gets a little bit even more confusing, is that certain towns or villages were very proud of their top, top Grand Cru vineyard. So they decided to name their town with a hyphen and the most popular or most revered vineyard. So there's a town called Gevry, and in Gevry, there is a Grand Cru vineyard called Le Chambertin. So now the name of this town is Gevry Chambertin. Now this happened all over the Côte d'Or. The town of Pouigny has a very, has a Grand Cru called Montrachet. So now it's Pouigny Montrachet. So what we have is a wine region that is about 80 plus miles long, including the Chablis region, which is almost like a satellite region to the north, that has so many vineyards, mind-boggling amount of vineyards, and most of them are concentrated right in the middle in the Côte d'Or, and those are the most parcelated vineyards in, almost in the world, with the monks kind of like did their whole microclimate thing. And then each of those vineyards are classified 
and the top vineyards and the second top vineyards are owned by multiple people in towns that are named their original name plus the name of the Grand Cru vineyard in that town. That is bleh. But hopefully through the confusion, you're kind of seeing how this all developed, kind of it makes it a little bit less intense. But it, so before I go, I'm going to go into the regions and, and generally talk about what, why they're awesome and, and what they have. But let me talk, this is how you read a wine label from Burgundy, okay? We have the four levels. We have Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Village, and Bourgogne. Okay, if we are in the town of Gevry, let's say, which now is called Gevry Chambertin because it has a Grand Cru vineyard in the town. Okay, we're in the town of Gevry Chambertin. Le Chambertin, the Grand Cru vineyard, has 21 people that own plots in that vineyard. If you are making wine in the Grand Cru Le Chambertin vineyard in the town of Gevry Chambertin, on your wine label, it will say Le Chambertin. Underneath that, it'll say Grand Cru. Underneath that, it'll be the domain or whoever makes the wine. That is a Grand Cru wine label from that town. Also, in Gevry Chambertin, the town, there are 26 Premier Cru vineyards. And they all have different names. If you are making a wine in Gevry Chambertin, the town, from one of the Premier Cru vineyards, on your wine label, you will have the name of the town, Gevry Chambertin. Underneath that, it'll say Premier Cru. Underneath that, it'll have the name of the Premier Cru vineyard, for example, La Casitaire. And then underneath that, it'll be the domain or the person who makes the wine. So, the premier cru label will be Gevry Champertin, premier cru, Les Casitaires, Domaine Arnaud Rousseau, something like that. Now, usually the Gevry Champertin thing will be in large type. If you make wine in the town of Gevry Champertin, but you do not have plots in either Grand Cru or premier cru vineyards, you're just making a wine from this town, that is called a village or a village wine. On that label, it'll just say Gevry Chambertin, the name of the village. And underneath that will be your domain name or the who, whoever makes the wine. And as far as Bourgogne is concerned, that is wine made from anywhere in the Burgundy region, really. Bourgogne is the lowest rung on the ladder. Not saying it's the worst, it's just the lowest. No matter what category you're in, Grand Cru, Premier Cru, Village, or Bourgogne, there is a, still a, the wacky thing about Burgundy. It's always a very inconsistent sort of quality thing because there's all these different people making wines in one vineyard. So now you kind of have a sense of what you're looking at when you see a Burgundy label. It's going to be, it's a, it, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, you have to really, <laughs> there's so many wines being made in Burgundy. It's, it's a little bit, it's, it's kind of mind numbing. So before your ears start ringing, you're like, oh my God, Keith, I'm just going to go over the, the, the wine regions give you a general idea of what's going on there. And then we can just wrap this up because I could go on for like three more episodes with Burgundy. So the province of Burgundy includes five viticultural regions in three departments. In the south, you have Saône et Loire. That is where the Maconnais and Côte de Chalonnais is. Just north of that, you have a department called the Côte d'Or, which we've talked about. And that department, we have the Côte de Baume and Côte de Nuit. And then all the way north, north of that, to the west, we have 
a department called the Yon Department, and that's where the town of Chablis is. The Maconais, being the most southern district, has more flatlands and it's more of a mix of mixed farming and, and winemaking. And this is a really great place for very affordable, clean, crisp, stainless steel Chardonnay. You don't see a lot of oak there, but you, you see some, but it's mostly going to be good, affordable Chardonnay. There are no Premier crew here. There are no Grand crew here, but they are very proud of their village. There are about 27 wines that have a village. As you head north, the elevation starts to pick up a little bit, and we're starting to feel a little bit of the slope from the escarpment, and we're in the Côte de Chalonnaise, Côte Slope Chalonnaise. This area has about 49 Premier Cru vineyards, uh, but the thing about this place that's very unique is there are two places in this area that do something different than anywhere else in Burgundy. You have a little place called Rui, where they, this is where you get sparkling wine made from Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in Burgundy. It's called Cremant de Bourgogne, and it is beautiful stuff. It's always very affordable. It's very, it's just great sparkling wine. There's also a small little appellation called Bouzeron that does a different grape than anything that I've talked about. A grape called Aligoté, which is, re- it's, it's related to Chardonnay. It's related to Pinot Noir, and it is very clean and steely and crisp. You might be, you might see it around. And there are no Grand Cru in the Côte de Chalonnaise. As we head north, we're now in the Côte d'Or, the famous place. And it's split into two sections. The southern part of the Côte d'Or is called Côte du Bon, and the northern part is called the Côte Nuit. And this is where you see the best of this slope. It goes to about 1,000 feet above sea level, and then it comes all the way down to the valley. And this Côte du Bon, the southern department, this is where Chardonnay shines. You get some of the most amazing Chardonnay wines in the world as you know as opposed to it with also with Chablis but this is like the most powerful Chardonnays in the world and the most elegant supple Chardonnays in the world are here. They do make Pinot Noir but they're known mostly for the Chardonnay with famous Grand Cru vineyards like Pomard, Volnay, Merceau, Pouligny Montrachet. You might see these around or recognize those names. There are eight Grand Cru vineyards in Côte de Bon, and there are 42 Premier Cru. The northern department of the Côte d'Or, Côte de Nuit, named after Nuit Saint-Georges, is the town in the area. This is it, guys. This is Pinot Noir. This is the stuff that Pinot, people have been losing their minds over Pinot Noir in this region for so long, and this is the sort of the, the place when people say, it's very Burgundian in style. This is what they're talking about. But again, just like Côte de Bon, it is a chaotic patchwork. It's not chaotic, really, but it's, it's, it's a crazy patchwork of all these different plots of land where Pinot Noir expresses itself in different, different ways just in one little area. This is where some of the most famous Grand Cru vineyards are. Gevry Champetain, which we talked about, Chambon Moussigny, Vougeot, Vaux Romani, Echezot. These are some of the most revered Pinot Noir plots in the world. And to kind of give you a sense, there are 24 Grand Cru in the Côte de Nuit, and there are 41 Premier Cru. So that kind of shows you how intense and how wonderful and how varied this soil, this ancient Jurassic soil is doing. And then a full 62 miles from the town of Bonn, over the Morvan Hills, up in the Yon department on the Serene River is the town of Chablis. I, I'm going to talk about Chablis a lot more with the Chardonnay episode, but God, I, mean, I love wines from Chablis. It is the most steely, crisp, angular 
refreshing Chardonnay ever. I mean, it is just the, it, it will, when you drink a Chablis, you're like, I don't know, it really hits you because of its refreshing, I don't know, the, the focus of these wines are just out of this world. And what's unique about Chablis is they have the same grading system with vineyards as, the, as you do in the rest of Burgundy, but it's a little bit different. There are technically seven Grand Cru Climat or vineyards in Chablis, but some people could just consider it one Grand Cru. Don't know why, but it, they're all kind of together. There's seven vineyards and they all have their own names, but those, that's the Grand Cru. And then they also have Premier Cru, like the rest of Burgundy. There's 40 of those. But then they have something, instead of village, they just have Chablis. Just if it says Chablis, it's like a village. And then below that is their Bourgogne, but they call it Petit Chablis. So if you ever see Petit Chablis, it's like a Bourgogne, or like a generic kind of Bourgogne wine. Oh, wow. So that's Burgundy, guys. And the reason why I went so far back in time is because <laughs> that's, I feel, how you understand Burgundy. It's just a wine region, like any other wine region, but not really. It's very unique. Actually, in 2015, it was awarded a world heritage site by UNESCO. So it is one of those places in the world, especially for wine, that is sort of magical. And there's something about that, something about the wine there that's that's special. There's And, and, and there, I read somewhere that scientists are still trying to understand the soil of Burgundy in 2020. It's just insane. If you're digging what I'm doing, picking up what I'm putting down, go ahead and give me a rating on iTunes or tell your friends to subscribe. You can subscribe. If you like to type, go ahead and send a, you know, a review or something like that. But let's get this wine podcast up so everybody can learn about wine. Check me out on Instagram. It's at VinePairKeith. I do all my stuff and stories. And also, you've got to follow VinePair on Instagram, which is at VinePair. And don't forget to listen to the VinePair podcast, which is hosted by Erica, Adam, and Zach. It's a great deep dive into drinks culture every week. Now for some credits. How about that? Wine 101 is recorded and produced by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the VinePair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallory. I also want to thank Daniel Grinberg for making the most legit Wine 101 logo. And I got to thank Darby Seaside for making this amazing song. Listen to this epic stuff. And finally, I want to thank the Vine Pear staff for helping me learn more every day. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Talbot Vineyards. At Talbot Vineyards, we focus on crafting estate-grown Chardonnay and Pinot Noir in Monterey County's Santa Lucia Highlands. Our celebrated Sleepy Hollow Vineyard is located in one of the coldest grape-growing climates in California, ideal for these two varieties. Here, the brisk wind and fog rolling off Monterey Bay create a long growing season, producing fruit-forward wines with spectacular acidity. We listen to Wine 101. We know what acidity is all about, right? Building on a nearly 40-year legacy of meticulous craftsmanship, Talbot continues to produce highly acclaimed wines of distinction.